Alrighty, we have a special announcement to the special announcement. You're going to hear a podcast that was recorded back uh, some time ago, a couple weeks ago, when we were going to drop and release the statement on social justice. And you'll see throughout this podcast that we're referring to it as having or going to drop on the 20th of August, I think was the original date. And what had happened was, I some may even heard the original because this dropped early, accidentally. It dropped on a Friday when it was supposed to go on a Sunday. And the reason that caused some issues is because there were some folks that still want to do some tweaking in the language of the statement. And so that has been done, and the statement is now released, and you can go to the website that we refer to. We say it's going to drop. Well, it has now dropped, and so you'll be able to go there, read the statement, hopefully agree with the statement, and sign the statement in agreement. And so that is some changes that we ended up having to do. So when this originally dropped, we had to pull it back. So with that, I'll also give you an announcement for folks listening that Matt Slick from Karm.org, Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, and I, who used to do a, a live apologetic show together, will be starting up again. We are going to be doing this on Thursday nights, no longer on Sunday nights. We're going to do this on Thursday. We are going to be starting this in the end of September on Thursday, the 27th. And so the 27th, 8 o'clock Eastern Time, this will be um, called Apologetics Live. And we will have a website called ApologeticsLive.com. You'll be able to go there, get the links so that you can watch it, interact with it. We'll have all the ways to join and ask your apologetics questions. You want to challenge Matt or I on things that we believe will be glad to address that. What this show is going to be doing is, as it, we did in the past several years ago when we used to do this for several years, uh, we not only do the apologetics by taking on atheists and, and folks who disagree with us, but then afterwards we'll explain why we, maybe Matt or I, asked the questions we did and did the the argumentation we made so you as maybe a new apologist can learn so without further ado we're going to give you the podcast that we had recorded some time ago with pastor josh bice on the statement of social justice okay we have a special episode today one that is so important that we pushed off what we originally had scheduled for this week's rap report because we have a very very special guest and this issue we're going to talk about is so important let me read to you what Dr. John MacArthur wrote in a recent blog. He said, quote, Over the years, I have fought a number of polemical battles against the ideas that threaten the gospel. This and recent and surprisingly sudden detour in quest of, quote, social justice, unquote, is, I believe, the most subtle and dangerous threat so far, unquote. That's what John MacArthur says about this topic. How are many evangelicals looking to address this? We're going to discuss that now. Welcome to the Rap Report with Andrew Rappaport, where we provide biblical interpretations and applications. This is a ministry of Striving for Eternity and the Christian podcast community. For more content or to request a speaker for your church, go to strivingforeternity.org. 
All right, well, we welcome you back to the Rap Report. I am Andrew Rappaport, a striving fraternity, and we have a special guest. Maybe you've heard of him if you have ever heard of or attended the G3 conference. And folks sometimes wonder, you know, what does G3 stand for? Because it seems like... Uh, you know, the G squared. What what is that? But we're going to talk with none other than Josh Bice, um, who was the founder of the G three conference. But we have something we're going to talk about after we discuss G three. That's going to be even more important. So, Josh, welcome to the Rap Report. Andrew, glad to be with you, man. And and I'm going to test my memory. I'm not going to go look this up, but uh, G three, if I remember correctly, was Grace. Um, I think Grace God, and I'm I'm drawing a blank on the third G, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, it's a gospel, grace, and glory. How can I forget? Yeah. As an evangelist, how can I forget gospel? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of evangelist am I? Shoot me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, hey, I, I, well, I'm glad to have you on. I've gotten to to meet you when I've been at the G3 conference, uh, which is a great conference. I enjoy I've been uh, I've been there two years in a row um, and thoroughly enjoyed it. So let's talk G3 first. Why did you start that? How'd that come about? Yeah, so uh, the the conference itself was birthed out of our local church. They are just west of Atlanta, Georgia. And so um, after I arrived there to serve as pastor, uh, one of the other elders and I started talking about wouldn't it be great to have a good theology conference in the Atlanta area? So we started, you know, working through the ideas of what that looked like and ended up uh, crafting a plan to do sort of like a, a month-long uh, conference, but it was just on Monday evening, so before consecutive Monday evening. After we finished it, uh, we kind of went back to the drawing board and looked to see if we accomplished the goals. And I was just bluntly honest. I thought that it was not successful. I thought that it was very much uh, not hitting all of the areas that we wanted to try to accomplish in the original plan. And so we went back to the drawing board and prayed and just asked for God's, you know, wisdom and clarity. And from that, we, uh, I just posed the idea that we would start a conference. It would be a weekend conference. So it'd be Thursday through Saturday. And we would take a theme every year and, you know, just try to keep everybody together instead of spreading it out over an entire month. And so 2013, we uh, formed this uh, conference known as the G3 Conference. We wanted it to be known when people asked us what it stood for, that it was based you know, on a robust uh, theological uh, position. And so it was not a pep rally for Christians or anything like that. And so 2013, we chose the theme of the gospel, and we ended up thinking that you know, we might have 200 people max that would come. And to our surprise, that December for the January conference, it was completely sold out in our congregation that the church campus, we can only see in our worship center about 700 to 750. <laughs> and so uh, we were sold out with a waiting list, had college students sleeping in the parking lot and in <laughs> January. Yeah. And so I was like, no, you're going to come to our home and stay there. And so we brought them to our home and let them sleep in at least a warm bedroom. But, but the fact is, uh, God really just did something quite different than what we had planned from the beginning. And he turned it into like a national conference because people did not come just from the Southeast or from the Atlanta area. They came from all over the United States and outside of the United States. And that was really the pattern for the first four years. And then leading up to the 2017 conference, I posed the idea that we would pray about moving it off of our church campus to a convention center over 
near the Atlanta airport for the Reformation Conference. And so we did that in 2017, went from 750 to 2,500 the first year that we moved. Last year, we had just under 3,000. And this year, we could hit 4,000. I mean, it's just wow. it's just r- really uh, mind-boggling to consider how God has grown the conference. Uh, I have people occasionally, Andrew, that will call me or email me, and they're like, hey, man, can we get lunch or coffee? I just want to kind of figure out like what they're really asking me for is like the secret sauce. Like, <laughs> how did you do this? Like, can you give me the blueprint? you know, and that type of thing. And I just, I'm just bluntly honest with them just to let them know that I don't have any of that kind of stuff that I could share with them that might be successful. This is just simply a conference that we prayed about doing and God really did all of it. And so I don't have like this, this special secret for success when it comes to conferences. Well, I think, I think the secret probably would be you have a tremendous number of speakers. I, I don't know of a conference that has as many speakers top-notch speakers that, that you have all in one place speaking. I mean, there's, uh, there's so many breakout sessions that you have. It, it's, I think really what it is, the evangelical church in America is, is so starving for biblical teaching that yeah. when they get all of these great speakers in one place, everyone wants to be there. Yeah. You know, I think that you're hitting on something there. I think that there is a definite hunger for sound biblical theology. And we found that to be true as we've talked to people through the years at the conference. And so, you know what, if the G3 conference can be used of God to, you know, help encourage and equip people in sound biblical theology and send them back to their local churches, encouraged in the faith, and do that with pastors and missionaries and and pastors' wives and people like that, then, you know, Praise God for that. So that's what we're seeking to accomplish. And and for folks who don't know, I mean, I've had the privilege of seeing some of the behind the scenes of, of conferences I run, but even some of G3. It is a ton to put together. There's a lot of running around. You don't really get to enjoy much of it, probably, because you're usually running around solving problems for people. But yeah, I mean, you did see that, like with Justin's breakout session last year, that type of thing. Um, so, I mean, we have, we just have problems. And thankfully, I mean, we have people like you that just stepped up to the plate and helped. I mean, but, uh, you know, you can't control things when it's not on your church campus and you're, you're relying on, you know, people who work for the convention center itself. But yeah, I mean, I would say that it's a joy, it's a privilege, it's an honor to serve so many people. Um, but it is definitely a, a lot of work. And so I don't get, the privilege to just come and take in the conference. So I typically go to like Shepherd's Conference or somewhere like that to just be able to really enjoy a conference. That's, I, you know, people think that my favorite events would be one of the conferences that Striving for Attorney puts on. They're not. Uh-huh. I don't get to enjoy those. I'm running around making sure everything works right. I enjoy yeah, going to absolutely. Shepherd's Conference G3 <laughs> somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm right with you on that. So so this year, G3, or G3 is going to be on missions, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a great topic. I, I think a lot of Christians think when they think of missions, they think, oh, those people who go overseas and we support them through our church so that they could share the gospel or build homes for someone in a third world country. I, I tend to think of uh, missions as what every Christian should be doing, <laughs> Right, the Great Commission. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. We should make, be making disciples where we are. Now, some of us mm-hmm. go overseas, but not all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's what G three ends up doing for a lot of folks. I think a lot of people go because they're hungry for the Word of God, and people don't understand like conferences like G three. You have like the the the, the top one percent of people who are really looking to grow in their spiritual life 
in all the churches around the country, all coming to one place. And people are always like, why can't church be like this every week? <laughs> it's because you're all gathering. It's, it's all the people that are people that are willing to, to travel the country to go to a conference like G3. They're looking to be spiritually fed. So when they get together with everyone else that's looking to be spiritually fed the same way, it, it creates such a an atmosphere of joy and spiritual development that, mm-hmm. you know, for folks who don't attend a conference like G3, they, they can't understand it. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think it, I think Paul Washer framed it very well when he said that, you know, coming to a conference like G3 is, is something like a foretaste of heaven on earth, just a little piece, a sliver of, of great joy that we get to engage with one another. But to be quite honest, it's not the local church. It's not to replace the local church. And we don't have the messiness and the difficulty of personalities and sin and confrontation and discipline and all of the, the ebb and flow of regular church life. It's like going on vacation and staying in a, in a guest house someplace. I mean, you don't have to, to look at the problems that you have around your own home. But when you return home, you still see that, that wall that needs to be painted. You see, you know, the different issues that need to be dealt with. And so that's the way it works for a conference. I mean, it can be a, a really um, encouraging thing to take in, but it's not something that should ever or could ever replace the local church. That's right. I mean, it, it's a great place for feeding, but it is not where you should be spending all your time. I mean, it, we need to take what we learn from G3 and bring it back to our churches so that we could take what we've learned and help others to grow. I mean, that is the Great Commission, right? The, to, to make disciples, teaching them all things that Christ has taught us. So if, mm-hmm. as we learn, we should teach. Mm-hmm. Amen. All right. So let, let's, let, after this commercial, I, I want to talk about the main issue we want to talk about, something that's going on from, from the time that we're recording this Monday, uh, a spe- something special that's going to be happening. And so I want to pick that up right after this commercial too. Ding dong. Jehovah's Witnesses. Ding dong. Mormons. Christian, are you ready to defend the faith when false religions ring your door? Bell, do you know what your Muslim and Jewish friends believe? You will if you get Andrew Rappaport's book, What Do They Believe? When we witness to people, we need to present the truth, but it is very wise to know what they believe, and you will get Andrew Rappaport's book at whatdotheybelieve.com. The good news is Striving for Eternity would love to come to your church to spend two days with your folks teaching them biblical hermeneutics. That's right, the art and science of interpreting scripture. The bad news is somebody attending might be really upset to discover Jeremiah 29.11 should not be their life verse. To learn more, go to strivingforeternity.org to host a Bible interpretation made easy seminar in your area. Okay, so Josh, on Monday, August 20th, there's going to be a special website that is going to go live. So if, if you're if folks are listening to this before then, the site's not going to be live until Monday. But l- I want to talk about this website. Uh, the site itself is called StatementOnSocialJustice.com. And so, Josh, what, what brought this about and who, who all's involved with this? Okay, yeah. So over the course of the last couple of years, I've been watching, of course, like many people, just noticing a lot of really goofy things that people have been stating and writing, uh, preaching in conferences or stating in chapel services. And a lot of this stuff centers under the umbrella of what we're hearing framed as social justice terminology, social justice politics. And so there's just a lot of uh, ambiguity as to you know, what is social justice, for instance, and uh, what does it entail, that type of thing. And so as I'm listening to 
people make these statements at conferences leading all the way up into like the recent MLK 50 conference and that type of thing. I, I was really burdened with the type of language that I'm hearing, the type of open apologies that are being written and the statements that are being, you know, made publicly about preaching a deficient gospel by very well-known individuals and authors and, and conference speakers. And so I just started talking to some friends and, you know, just basically felt the need to get a group of men together to have a conversation on what this this whole thing related to social justice actually is to try to diagnose it and then to try to work towards a solution. So back in June, we gathered in Dallas, Texas with a group of men and we just really tried to work through the issues, you know, trying to listen to what people are saying, looking at uh, social media and conference sermons and things that people are stating and then trying to figure out how we can not only diagnose it and see the problem, but how can we really address it? How can we speak with a corrective tone, but yet a tone of love at the same time and try to push back against this type of uh, political agenda, really. And so um, emerging from that meeting in Dallas was the idea that we would uh, develop a website uh, and a statement, a theological statement with affirmations and denials where we would frame the idea of here's where we stand and then here's what we reject. So we affirm this and we deny this. And then we would simply put it out to the evangelical world and say, if you can agree with us on these issues, then please sign this, this statement and stand with us on these matters. And we hope that it'll be an encouragement to so many people who have been, you know, really burdened and just asking questions about where this is coming from, where are we going, why do we need to apologize for our skin color suddenly, um, am I preaching a truncated gospel, am I guilty of not preaching the full counsel of God's Word, and that type of thing. And so uh, really the statement is to provide some light and heat at the same time. Yeah, and, and I, you know, men like, for this group that got together in June, I mean, people like Dr. John MacArthur, Phil Johnson, James White, Vody Bauckham, yourself, I think even even Justin Peters and, and others got together to to develop this. So this is not some just guys off the street. I mean, these are people who are theologians, thinkers, people who wrestle with these type of issues and wrestle with theology. So I think that this is something that we, we need to stand up and recognize if, if there's folks like this, they're saying this is an issue, uh, especially when we consider what, what Dr. MacArthur said in, in his blog when he, when he said, you know, he's, he's talking about the fact that this may be the most dangerous threat from all of them. And you think about the, the uh, inerrancy debates and all the others that have been going on that he has addressed over the, the years that he's been in ministry over almost 50 years now, one church. Mm-hmm. And, you, and he says this, he thinks, is the most dangerous. Why do mm-hmm. you think it is the most dangerous? Why do you think we have to address this so yeah, so loud? Yeah, so Andrew, I think you're right. Um, when he makes that statement, I would, I would agree with that. Um, I would think it's probably ranks up in the top uh, issues that the church has faced in the last one to 200 years. And I think that that can be substantiated simply because of the fact that this is such a fluid agenda. It's such a, it's such a, a difficult agenda to really put under your thumb. So it's not like the inerrancy debate where you could just say, okay, these guys don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And so now you frame the whole argument, you understand, at least at a superficial, you know, 
uh, level, okay, this is the main idea. Now, there were lots of different nuances under that, but you could at least spotlight the main idea. When you say social justice, people don't really understand what you're talking about. When you say uh, that the church needs to care for those who are oppressed, well, then that sounds very attractive to a lot of people, especially the millennial population. Let's just be honest. A lot of the millennials want to buy a leather bag, but they want to buy one that they know that 30% of the profit has gone to build wells in the very community in which the bag was, you know, uh, manufactured. And so um, you start thinking about the cause type of approach to millennial purchasing and, you know, that type of uh, idea that they're so much interested in supporting. And then you think about throwing uh, this idea of oppression, you know, that certain people, certain segments like uh, different uh, skin color, people of color have been oppressed. So we need to apologize and we need to empower them. Women have been oppressed, held back from flourishing in evangelicalism. So we need to apologize to them and empower them to the highest level of of office in denominational life or local churches so that they can uh, bloom for the glory of God. All that sounds really good on on the surface if we really have been oppressed oppressing these individuals. But really the question becomes, have we oppressed these individuals? And is the system really rigged in such a way to hold back certain people in our culture? And so um, this this whole social justice agenda is so dangerous because it really uh, starts to bypass the sufficiency of Scripture, and then it starts to import uh, very dangerous political and cultural agendas on onto the or into the, the evangelical circles in religious clothing. And so it can be very attractive and very dangerous at the same time. You know, I've done a couple of podcasts on this issue of social justice. Did one with Daryl Harris when the there was an article that came out. Uh, I forget who wrote that at, at this time, but there was an article about black and white and there was uh, the other issues we dealt with on social justice. And here's the thing I'm always bringing it back to. It, it, it comes back to the gospel. It, it comes back to who's defining the people that are being mistreated because I, coming from my background, my generation, I grew up in a Jewish home going to Hebrew school a generation after the Holocaust. Should every person in America have to support me because you know they didn't they didn't come and defend the Jews that were being murdered. The, mm-hmm. the, the Catholic Church actually funded it. Should every Catholic be are they at fault because they didn't do anything? I mean, w- when you get to this, trying to make right make right for wrongs that were done by other people, that's not biblical. I mean, it, you, we don't punish someone else for a sin that another person does. Mm-hmm. And I think that trying to say that if you don't see that you're racist then you have a, a, you're hidden. It's, you don't even recognize it. It's just a way of trying to argue to silence people, in my mm. opinion, because there's there's really no answers. I've said this over and over again, but if you want to end racism, the only way to end racism is to actually end racism. You will never end racism by using some sort of reverse racism. That doesn't end it. It's still yeah. racism. Well, and- and I, I firmly believe that this is the case, at least in American culture as a whole, the idea of racial reconciliation. And even I know this is probably going to get a lot of uh, negative remarks maybe uh, from, from certain groups or segments, but even the civil rights movement as a whole, um, I think the end game was that there is no end. The end game is that there is no end at all. And so we 
we frame this idea that we're going to come as the hero to help organize a movement to help those who are oppressed. And so what we do is we keep keep the different segments, we keep the different ethnicities divided so as to keep the sympathy coming the, and, and the whole movement itself continues to roll forward and it never really comes to a close because those who are seated in the positions of power continue to be empowered by this system. So if they ever arrive at a cul-de-sac, so to speak, or if they ever arrive at the end and there is genuine unity that comes about, then their movement ends. And so I firmly believe that that same type of idea, it might not be as devious or depraved uh, in that sense, but the same uh, model, so to speak, is now being used within evangelical circles. And well, so, uh, again, it's, it's what some are calling uh, like neo-Marxism or, or cultural Marxism. Uh, Gramscian Marxism is really what it is. And so it's that it's that approach that divides up a culture into different segments of race, class, and gender, and then tries to create you know, a sympathy movement, and that sympathy movement is is very lucrative. It's a business. Let me give. Let me put some weight to that by giving a quote from Booker T. Washington. He said this quote: "There is another class of colored people who make a business of keeping the troubles, the wrongs, and the hardships of the Negro race before the public, having learned." Mm-hmm that they are able to make a living out of their troubles. They have grown into the settled habit of advertising their wrongs, partly because they want sympathy and partly because it pays. Some of these people do not want the Negro to lose his grievances because they do not want to lose their jobs, unquote. If you read Barack Obama's book that he wrote before he was president, before he ran for Senate, he said he recognized the fact that as a black man, and by the way, for the record, Barack Obama was just as white if not more than black, because he was raised in a white home by a white mother and barely knew his his black father. So when when we realize this, he said in his own book, his own writings, that he recognized that as a black man raised in in a white neighborhood, he could get votes, he would be able to run for Senate, and his explanation was he would be able to hold that job for life, being a mm-hmm. black man able to reach out to whites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so that quote is it, it's extremely important as we frame this understanding. And so you have this Gramscian Marxism, which is exactly what that quote is driving at. And then you have the reason that this is such a, a devious agenda, so dangerous, as uh, John MacArthur has said it was, or is, is simply because of the fact that social justice not only encompasses the idea of racism and that whole idea of continuing to keep the ethnicities divided, uh, all under the umbrella and the agenda of uh, racial reconciliation. Like we're trying to, to unite everybody, but really it's just keeping everyone divided. Like when you have a guy stand on a platform at an evangelical conference at the MLK 50 event, and he gives a spoken word poem about Dear Mike Brown, and he's slapping Vody Bauckham across the face without calling his name in the poem, and he's just driving at this this harsh uh, racism, this this divisiveness. That's very unhelpful. But then you go beyond this, the social justice train not only has that uh, shipping container, but the second shipping container is the idea of complementarianism. Now, we as conservative evangelicals for a long 
long time have have really held the line on the issue of the office of elder, the responsibility of the local church to be led by capable biblical uh, men who are who are called to that office, and then also uh, again with the idea of the different roles and responsibilities of both men and women, although both created equal and as image bearers, there are distinct roles that are given to women that are not given to men, and very distinct roles that are given to men that aren't given to women. This is not only true for the local church, but for society as a whole. And so now, suddenly, there's this this, uh, this massive need to redefine complementarianism. Mm. And so now we're having this conversation within the Southern Baptist Do we and should we allow for the election of a woman to serve as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention? And you're having people like, you know, like uh, Russell Moore and, you know, even former presidents of the convention, you know, who like James Merritt, who are making statements openly that there's nothing that would prohibit a woman from serving as, as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. So now we're having to deal with that. That's like what you call the second shipping container in the social justice train. But then the third that a lot of people aren't really noticing just yet, but it's coming quickly. And it, it, it really is the third shipping container on this train. And it's the whole idea that we have not only oppressed people of color and women, but we have also oppressed LGBT Christians as well. Yeah, and coming. so we've seen the we've seen the recent Revoice conference that was held at a PCA church in St. Louis. And the idea now is that we should allow LGBT Christians, which, by the way, there is no such thing. Amen. Um, into the local church uh, and to have a seat at the table in full membership status because they struggle with their sin that you might not struggle with, but they're sinners and they, they should be accepted into the life of the local church as well. And so these are issues that are all coming quickly. And so this is why this agenda is such a dangerous agenda. I, I don't remember at a time ever in the church where we had uh, adulterous Christians, murdering Christians, rapist Christians, lying Christians. Aren't they mm-hmm. all just repenting of that and becoming Christian? They were the, those yeah. things. <laughs> and now they're yeah, Christian. I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, what does the Apostle Paul say? He uses the past tense that such were some of you, but you have been washed, you have been cleansed. You have been, you know, redeemed by the blood of Christ. That's the idea. And so, um, you know, any time, and I said this on Twitter, had some pushback, but I think I stand behind what I stated. Um, as it pertains to the whole idea of gay Christianity, any time that you allow for a dual title, you know, or a dual identity. So if you share, like, if, if you allow a, a, a hyphenated identity, like, so I'm a, I'm a gay Christian. Well, eventually your sin is going to whisper in your ear and, and ask you to do away with this Jesus guy, you know, or if you say that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lustful Christian or whatever it might be, uh, eventually your sin is, is pretty soon is going to whisper in your ear to do away with this Jesus. And so you can't have life and darkness abiding together. The scripture is abundantly clear that Satan and Christ are not linked together. And so we just cannot stand for this idea of LGBT Christianity or, you know, like you've mentioned before, you know, adulterers who are adultering uh, Christians and, and, and murderous Christians or whatever it might be. We just need to be clear. We are Christians who have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ. And, and I dealt with this on a, a recent podcast with the Revoice Conference because some of the guys that organize that are, are now trying to argue for romantic celibate relationships 
where they live together. I don't know of a church where we would have someone, even if they're engaged to be married, heterosexual couple, we would never, at least in my church, never allow them into membership if they're living together, even if they're engaged, even if they're planning to get married and they're saying, but we're celibate. We're not going to do anything. We would yeah. never do that because you, you. it's like, no, you shouldn't be in that position of temptation. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the next step, I think you're totally right. The next step is going to be to say it, it should be accepted. They keep trying to push the envelope. And I find it amazing. It's always within Christianity. You know, social justice warriors are not out there trying to push the envelope with Islam or Mormonism or any of those. It's always, you know, the the true biblical gospel that they're going after. I, I remember in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, um, I was in college. Um, I end up always having to explain this, the, the history of this because it's, people ask, why was I reading a homosexual magazine? I was alone in college uh, during Christmas break, and the only person around was foreign students and my RA. My RA resident assistant came in very drunk one night, wanted me to read something that he said he found in the in the janitor's closet. It was a, it was an article in a homosexual magazine. I personally think he may have been a practicing homosexual and wanted to see if being the only other person on campus, if something could happen. Uh, but he knew I was a Christian. Here's the interesting thing about the article. The article was a, a game plan for how uh, homosexuality would be mainstreamed in in America, in culture. Mm-hmm. And they had a game plan. They said, we have to be victims and we have to constantly be victims. But it was interesting. They said, we have to be victims of, of a group that won't actually attack us. And so they laid out a case why Christians would be that group. They said Christians would never actually sue them, never actually punish them, never actually hurt them. In fact, if their game plan works, the Christians will actually further their cause and endorse them. And they laid out an argument for playing the victim, needing to be taught, uh, have this taught in schools so kids grow growing up would understand that this is just the way people are, to argue that they have no control over this, and then to get people in politics that would push the agenda, and eventually go after the church to try to push that. And that's the stage we're at. And we're seeing this. We're seeing people with it. They're trying to go after conservative churches, conservative groups, like you, you mentioned, the PCA, to try to get them involved. And now the Southern Baptists, I think, are going to be the next ones to, to get drawn into this, to try mm-hmm. to push an unbiblical agenda. And here's the real issue I see with this and why I'm so supportive of this statement on social justice that's coming out on Monday, August 20th at statementonsocialjustice.com. The reason I think this is so important is I think this affects what the gospel message the church proclaims is. Mm -hmm. This is a core issue, and the, the Christian should realize that God has clearly said there is no division between Jew and Greek, free and slave, male, female. When it comes to salvation, we, the church are about the gospel, presenting the gospel, and reaching out to a lost world with the gospel. Not reaching out to a lost world to try to make them feel better about their sin, or to reach out to a lost world to try to get them to like us more, because I think that's underlying for many of these people what it really comes down to. They're they're seeing a world that is attacking, is getting more and more aggressive against Christianity, and they want to be liked. And, and this is not new to history. This happened in World War II Nazi Germany. You know, growing up when I did and how I did, we would sit in Hebrew school and have a, we'd watch a lot of films and documentaries and read lots of books about what happened in Nazi Germany. The thing that always amazed me is everyone in, in Germany said this couldn't be happening because we're too civilized. And even though it was happening right under their nose. And the thing is, there were plenty of Jewish people that thought if they, they could even be 
members of the Nazi party to, to be safe so that they would be protected, get along with them. But once the Nazis got enough power, they were not safe. They were thrown into the same concentration camps. And I think for many of these people who want to go along with social justice because they want to go along with the world and the culture and, and not feel that pressure, the world is not going to stop coming after them. It's mm-hmm. going to continue until the Christian gospel is silenced. Mm-hmm. Well, you're right. And, you know, the, the problem with social justice is this uh, very deficient foundation to begin with. I mean, it's a, it bypasses the sufficiency of Scripture and the, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this idea that you can bring about unity among a group of depraved sinners through political maneuvers is just completely unfounded biblically. And so that's one of the, the massive problems from the very beginning. And so now we're starting to see people use this idea of intersectionality as one of the, the main tools. And so Kimberly Crenshaw, a woman that was basically a leftist, uh, liberal, uh, you know, uh, homosexual activist uh, back in the 80s, she actually coined this this term called intersectionality. And basically it was this idea that, that if you're a woman in our culture, you're oppressed just because of the fact that you're a woman. And then if you happen to be a black woman, then you are oppressed because because of the color of your skin and also because of your gender. And then if you happen to be a lesbian black woman, now that's three areas, three circles of oppression. And where all of those three circles intersect is the greatest probability of oppression for that individual, which is just so happens to be at the heart of who that individual is, according to Kimberly Crenshaw. So that, so, so that whole idea of, of that leftist agenda is now being imported into evangelicalism, and we're starting to hear that type of language now to where we have to use that that political uh, methodology to try to help the oppressed. And I think it's very troubling. I, I think the, the issue that we end up seeing with this is that there really is no end game, as you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. What is it these folks hope to achieve? What is the end? When does this all stop? Well, I don't think it does stop. I think that, that what happens, and I think that, let's just be really honest. I want to be clear here. I think that, that you have some really, really good people that are caught in the middle. So you have the social justice warrior type that's like really going after this thing on social media, and they're really writing you know articles that are very unhelpful and that kind of thing. And then you have folks like myself or others who might be on the far other side of the fence who are saying, no, we disagree with that. And then you have the people that are kind of stuck in the middle and they're kind of caught like, I don't really understand this. Like I went to a conference expecting to hear something and I heard something quite different or I'm reading this person that I've trusted for so long and I'm starting to notice this really deep sense of you know, political jargon and a commitment to a, a certain political ideology. And so I think there's a lot of people in the middle that are just confused. And I think that they're trying to figure out what direction they should go. And so the purpose of this statement that's coming out uh, on the 20th is just to try to help people understand that here's where we stand. We're, we're planting a flag here. And we think that we need to hold the line on some of these issues that are being pressed, relentlessly pressed upon us. And so the end game, I think, is that there is no end game for those who are really in control. Now, I do think that there is another agenda. I think that from a political point of view, when you get into the, the, the back door of the, the political room, so to speak, I think that there are conversations that are being had where you have people who are stating um, that, you know, we need to deconstruct the hierarchy. We need to deconstruct the power structure. And so this social justice agenda will remove people from certain key leadership positions and put into those seats the people that they want there to accomplish their 
their political goals and their theological goals. And so I think that that's really one of the the massive um, you know goals for this agenda. And and you know before we we're going to take a break in a bit, but before we do, and I want to after that discuss the statement itself a bit. But I think what we end up seeing with this, not only is there there kind of no no end goal for the warriors, but we as Christians we do have a concern for those who are the downtrodden, a concern for those who are being unfairly treated. And I think that's mm-hmm. the appeal for many Christians because for many of us we we want to right wrongs and and protect the innocent it's something that you know james says is true religion right taking care of the widows and the fatherless and so when we look at this i think many christians are are struggling because it sounds like something christians should be involved with something the church should be involved with so is this social justice is this the church's mission or is the, the church's mission something else and how does this then affect the church's mission yeah so i think it's not the church's mission I think that the church's mission has always been very clear from the beginning that we are to uh, love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. And uh, we are to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ um, uh, in, con- in, a, in a life uh, individually that's in complete submission to Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so we are to be uh, very much living out our lives through the local church and under authority. And we are to be engaged in uh, both discipleship and mission endeavors to make Christ known. Now, we take the gospel to the culture, but we don't import the culture onto the gospel. And so where this becomes very tricky is this idea where you have a constant stream of language where people are just consistently stating this is a quote-unquote gospel issue. Well, is it a gospel issue? Uh, I don't think it necessarily is a gospel issue. I think a lot of people are using gospel as a catchphrase or a a, a certain type of uh, motivational term that they can try to catch people with because, after all, I mean, Christians are going to stand for the gospel, right? So um, you have that type of language where you have people that are stating that this is a gospel issue. So, yeah, I, I think that this can be dangerous because it does twist the church's mission into something other than what Jesus has commissioned us to do in the first place. That's right. Right, right after this break, I want to come back and I want to discuss the statement itself and what we can expect to see in that. Can you prove that God is a trinity? Can you prove that Jesus is God? Can you defend the Christian faith? And what is it that Christians truly believe? The new book by Andrew Rappaport, What Do We Believe, will answer those questions and more. Some people just don't understand what the church is today. But this book will go through the history and meaning of the church. And what's more important than to understand man's sinfulness and God's salvation? Get your copy at whatdowebelievebook.com or at the strivingforeternity.org store. I actually think, Josh, that this is the problem. We, we've lost an understanding of theology being taught in churches. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the book that Tony just referred to, it's, a, it's about theology. People don't aren't as interested in theology as they used to be. It's Now we've passed it to tell stories. It's more about... Um, how many, how big their platform is on Twitter and Facebook or, you know, things like this, rather than getting into the theology. It just seems like mm-hmm. there's such a drought of that. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so we have a statement that you guys put together. Um, as of today, at the at the record, we're, when we're recording, there's over 75 signers of this statement already. And the statement on August 20th, that's Monday, um, this statement will go live. So if you're if you're hearing this before then, you got to wait till Monday. But afterwards, go to statementonsocialjustice.com. I will make sure that the link is in the show notes. 
so that you can go there and read the statement. And we would hope that you would be in agreement with the statement and that you would be willing to sign it. So I want to cover really quick, I'm going to go through the different topics that you guys have addressed that are covered in here. And then I'd like you to kind of go through just a high level um, what it is you're trying to point out in these. And maybe actually we should just take each one, uh, if we have time, just take each one and we'll go through. There's, uh, I think, a total of, um, I'm trying to remember how many, is 14? it uh, 14, mm-hmm. I think? So, so the first one you have is scripture. Mm-hmm. Good good yeah. thing that that's first, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you, you, why why that? Why did you feel the need to, to address the issue of scripture? Well, I mean, if you take any theological statement worth its weight in salt, I mean, you have um, you have typically an article at the beginning on scripture because it's our foundation. So uh, we want to set forth this idea that we're not seeking to just ramble on about our own opinions in the other 13 articles, but we stand on a shamedly upon the Word of God. And so Scripture is our final authority, and so we're going to be driven by Scripture itself. Now, this is the one of the only ones, I'd, if I could tweak it a little, I would add one word, and that is where you say, where it says, it is inerrant, infallible, and the final authority for determining what is true, I would just like to add the word sufficient. I would actually like to have a whole statement just on, on sufficiency, because that's really, I think, an underlying, one of two underlying things that I think is the the problem with social justice is within the church, the issue is that people don't think the Bible is sufficient, or as you put here, the final authority, but it's, it's not sufficient to answer the issues. And we have to go to culture, which you do address later culture, but I really think that the sufficiency is an underlying problem that we have. Yeah, it is. It is. And unfortunately, we're going to be judged by what we say, what we don't say in this article. It's going to be picked clean. It's going to be just poured over, you know, to the, to the nth degree. Um, but, once again, you know, we, we definitely want to spotlight Scripture from the very beginning. Yeah, and, and we're not going to make everyone happy ever, right? <laughs> yeah, that's correct. The, the second article you have is the image of God. You know, why, why bring that one up? What's, what do you want to address with that? Well, as it pertains to the idea of racism, we need to make sure that we understand that every single human being, all ethnicity, there's one human race, by the way, and we're going to talk about that later, but um, there's one human race. We all go back to Adam, but every one of us are are literally created in the image of God. So um, beneath the color of skin, we're all the same as far as biological makeup. And so we are created in the image of God, and that's with our, you know, the, the totality of our human, you know, existence. And so we want to make sure that we understand that we believe that that's for both male and female. And it's uh, and it's certainly for, for every single ethnicity on planet Earth. Now, this one's kind of clear. The third article is justice. You kind of figure that's going to come up in, <laughs> in a statement on social justice. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, again, it just says we affirm that since he is holy, righteous, and just, God requires those who bear his image to live justly in the world. And then it goes on and talks about, we affirm that societies at time must establish laws that correct injustices that have been imposed through cultural prejudice. Okay, so we, we recognize that uh, that all the systems in the world are going to be affected by sin because every system is made up by individual sinners. But what we're driving at is that God is the one who who is the author of genuine justice, and we don't need a social justice to re- to replace God's justice. And so, um, you know, we want to say we affirm this, and we deny certain things. So we deny that true justice can be culturally defined, or that merely socially constructed standards of justice can be imposed with biblical authority. 
So we don't want culture driving scripture. We want scripture uh, addressing culture, if that makes sense. Well, in the founding of this country, it was that scripture drove culture. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, right. even you know, in the founding of this country, even even the deists used to pretend to be Christians. <laughs> they would. Speak, yeah. I mean, Thomas Jefferson would speak as if he was a Christian. Right. Now we have Christians that speak as if they're ungodly uh, from pulpits. Yeah. Article number four: God's law. Yeah. So God's law again is uh, what we need to make sure that we understand that um, when we think about injustice, how we think about sin itself is that God has a standard, and His standard must be obeyed. And so, if we want to affirm that you know, God's law. And as we state here in the article, I summarize in the Ten Commandments. Uh, more specifically, uh, can, can you get closer to the phone? Yeah. Yeah. Are you there? There you go. Yeah. Now, now we can hear yeah. you. So, so uh, more succinctly summarized in the two great commandments and manifested in Jesus Christ is the only standard of unchanging righteousness. So we want to make sure that we're affirming, you know, the the great standard that God has set before us, not what we think of as far as cultural standard, because that's exactly the problem that the Jews were getting themselves involved in. They were trying to build a fence around God's law, and they were trying to just add things to it to the point that it literally just became a burdensome thing, and it turned into a very legalistic uh, approach to um, self-righteousness, basically. And so we, we want to avoid that. We, we think that the gospel is good news, and we think that Christianity should be full of joy. And so the idea of social justice is, in many ways, importing a lot of cultural standards upon the Church of Jesus Christ, that can be very troublesome. Article number five is going to address the issue of sin. Mm-hmm. Why, yeah. why address that? Yeah, because I think we need to understand the definition of sin. We need to understand what sin is, and we need to understand, uh, you know, the idea that, that we are held accountable for sin individually, and we're not to be repenting of sin corporately. Uh, and so we, we want to make sure that we affirm the biblical understanding of sin and then we deny that, you know, that, that we are uh, culpable for another person. Yeah, and, and you make that clear in, in the statement, especially in the what we deny section, because this is this is really a central issue to what the social justice movement is, is trying to say is that whites, and, and we're seeing this within the church, that whites in the church are responsible for things that generations of whites did long ago. I mean, I, I'm being told that I am responsible for slavery when no one in my family <laughs> ever owned slaves. My, my family, you know, is Jewish roots that come from Russia and Romania. There was no slaves of the African slave trade that they were involved in. They didn't promote it. They didn't own slaves. They had nothing to do with that in the generations that my family comes from. So how, how would I be responsible? How would I have some collective guilt over things yeah. that ancestors did that aren't my ancestors? Yeah, and we're also seeing another, another nuance too, and that's the idea of the second chicken container, which I mentioned earlier, with the, um, the idea of complementarianism. So you, you see now people who are writing open apology letters for oppressing Beth Moore. <laughs> and so now we have to apologize to Beth Moore and to every other woman that's out there that's a conference speaker because we are not allowing them to either be president of the Southern Baptist Convention or we're not inviting them to preach to mixed audiences and even evangelical conferences or, you know, preach to mixed audiences in the local church, provided that they're not holding the office 
progressive elder. And so we're seeing that type of idea pressed upon us. So we need to apologize, you know, in that way. And I think that that's just absolutely uh, unfounded biblically. But, but you just mentioned she who should never be criticized. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Moving right along, just moving right along. Right. <laughs> I mean, it, it does. It really is amazing how you, you almost can't criticize her and people don't even, they ignore the fact that she's, she's now openly associating with, with people that we consider rank heretics in this. Well, in now, prosperity so gospel. Andrew, that's, yeah. And Andrew, that's exactly, uh, I think the point we need to be making here as it pertains to Beth Moore, like there's a lot of people saying, well, you shouldn't be as critical about Beth Moore and evangelical circles goals and that type of thing. And I get it. I understand. I mean, I think that there are some people that could actually go beyond, you know, the necessary point with her. I think that they can be overly critical at times. But here's the real rub for me is that um, she is very much associating herself with a lot of rank heritage. And she is not only associating herself with those people, but she's also stating those types of ideas and those theological positions. And so let's just be clear. We're not trying to pick on Beth Moore just to, you know, stir up trouble. Uh, we're trying to actually state that there are some problems with her theology. And so I believe that she's she's a charismatic who is being just welcomed in with open arms into, you know, Southern Baptist life. And so that's an issue. You know, people want to say, well, should Beth Moore be the president? She's a, of the SBC. She's a woman. Why? I've got another question. Should a charismatic be the president of the Southern Baptist? Well, I, I would go a little further. I mean, I, I think Beth Moore is a perfect illustration or poster child in this case of where, why this social justice, the statement on social justice is necessary because, you know, she appealed originally to, to conservative audiences. And now you see her, look, she has made public statements that she has had dreams from God stating things that didn't come true. That would make mm-hmm. her a false prophet. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you look at her life and, and, and where her ministry is. And this is exactly what we see and why this issue is such a concern to people like you and I, because what we see in her is where we see the church heading. If, if they don't stop this, she has appealed more and more to, to gaining the audience, the platform, and in doing so is, is associating with people that are prosperity gospel, a totally different gospel message. She's speaking like them, as you mentioned. It's not that we pick on her, but I would I would say the question is: Should you have somebody who claims that she has extra biblical revelation coming to her and false revelation? Should she be the president of the Southern Baptist? The reality is, most of the people will will turn a blind eye to that because she's a woman. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, she's going to get a free pass on a lot of that simply because of the fact that she she's a woman, and we are at a point to where we are going to be seen as discriminating against her simply because of the fact that she's a woman. So that's yeah. where we are. Yeah. Okay. So let's go to number number six, uh, the gospel. One of the, one of the three G's in, G, in the G3 conference that I forgot. <laughs> you got it, man. You got it this time. All right. Um, so, I'm never uh, going to forget that again. You now realize that, right, Josh? <laughs> <laughs> it needs to be the first one out. Yeah. Gospel, grace, and glory. So, um, so yeah, in this particular uh, statement, uh, uh, this particular article in the statement, we want to affirm, uh, again, the the preeminent position of the gospel. And so in, in Christian, uh, not just Christian circles, but the evangelical circles, you might say, as a whole, we need to make sure that our foundation is the 
gospel, and then we also don't need to lose confidence in the gospel. So when we think about racial reconciliation, we hear all of this stuff about, well, we have to use this political method like intersectionality, or we have to use something else in order to try to achieve this, this reconciliation. Well, I just want to ask a simple question. Is the gospel somehow insufficient to do that? And so call me crazy, but when I read the Bible, I see that it the gospel of Jesus Christ is bringing unity in different cultural scenes, like take the demon-possessed man who's out of his mind, and he's naked, and he's cutting himself in the in the tomb. And then the gospel, Jesus in his earthly ministry, in person, preaches the gospel to him, and his life is transformed. And so he's now, instead of cast out into the community, now he's clothed, in the, and he's in his right mind. And he can actually be civil, and he can have, you know, unity together with other people, whereas before he he could not. And so I think that we need to understand that the gospel is what brings, you know, the Jew and the Gentile, the bond and the free, the red, the yellow, the black, the white, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. It brings everyone together. And so we don't need politics. We need the gospel. And I, I love the, the statement that says, we deny that anything else, whether it be works to be performed or opinions to be held, can be added to the gospel without perverting it into another gospel. I mean, this has been in the issue. Galatians was written over this issue, yeah, right? Absolutely. They want yeah. to change the gospel message. Yeah, and that's precisely why in the bottom you see the scripture, one of the scripture references is Galatians 1, 6-9, when Paul said, if anyone comes, if an angel from heaven come preaching any other gospel than the gospel that we have delivered unto you, let, let that one be anathema. Let that one be accursed, damned to hell. So uh, we can definitely run the risk at this juncture, if we're not careful, of mission drift with, within the local church or within the church itself of Jesus Christ with social gospel issues, of mission drift where the church, instead of focusing on the gospel, we then focus on something else. It's sort of like this. It's like, say Chick-fil-A, um, say they have an employee that's uh, on Saturday with a, a double wraparound line at the drive standing there decides, you know what, as a good service, I'm just going to wash windows. And so they start washing washing windows as a service to those in the drive-thru, and then pretty soon they get so good at it that higher-up management starts to, to, to see this, and they decide, you know what, we're going to start a window-washing service at Chick-fil-A. And then pretty soon, over the course of time, they become so focused on their window-washing service that they neglect their ability to produce a good chicken sandwich. That's what we call mission drift. And so if the church of Jesus Christ loses sight on the mission of the gospel and then instead turns to social issues like social justice, then we have certainly capitulated and we can run the risk of, of uh, formulating and embracing a false gospel. And so let's move on to number seven, salvation. So salvation, again, we need to understand that salvation you know, comes by grace alone. And so the idea that, that we could use political maneuvering to, you know, bring people to a place of right standing before God. Not that we necessarily see people suggesting that if you're woke, that, that you know, the same as being born again. But there's an awful lot of, you know, emphasis on being woke. I want to hear people preaching about being awakened by the Spirit of God and what genuine uh, new birth is, the recreative work of God and, you know, bringing dead sinners to life spiritually. But instead, I'm hearing a lot of people preaching about woke. You know, are you woke? Are you able to see systemic oppression 
and systemic injustice. And so we want to know, we, we want people to see that we affirm that salvation comes by grace alone. And then we also want to deny that salvation can be received in any other way. And so we think that any type of uh, Christian group that would formulate a statement on something like this, not only do we need to start with Scripture and have an article on the gospel, but we also need to be clear on salvation. You know, you, you mentioned uh, the term woke, and for folks who aren't as involved in this whole social justice movement, they may not know what that term means. I actually, when I started hearing it, I had to, I had to call my friend from the bar podcast, you know, and, and like, well, help me out with this, you know, because I hear this all the time. And, and, you know, what is it, what's the term mean woke? Well, really, if you want to look at uh, what the term means, I mean, uh, you know, Eric Mason has suggested that it's, it's basically coming out of the black nationalist movement. And so it's a, it's an urban colloquialism. It's some type of, you know, terminology that's coming out of that type of uh, cultural background that's suggesting that if you can't see systemic racism that's alive and well in our culture, not only at large, but also our culture as far as evangelicalism and you are not woke. You're not awakened. Like, in other words, you don't have eyes to see it. And so if you can see systemic racism, that the system itself is rigged against people of color and holding people back, there's a glass ceiling. You can't, you know, go but a certain, you know, height as far as the, the climbing the ladder. If you can see that, then you are woke. And so, you know, again, that's, that's really what the term means in a nutshell. Okay, so let's move on to number eight, the church. Mm -hmm. So what are you trying to affirm and, and what are we trying to deny in, in this article? Well, we, we want people to understand that the church is and should take the primary role, you know, for believers. And so this idea that you can just be a social justice warrior, you can be out, you know, involved in cultural things and, and just living out in, in activism all the time, that that's, that's certainly an incorrect position to hold. And so we want to, once again, put a spotlight on the idea that, that the church is plan A, you know, for God's people. And we need to be living our lives and using our giftedness uh, to equip saints and to evangelize the law through the local church. Then we go on to heresy, which is number nine. Mm -hmm. Well, again, I think that we need to be clear um, on this, and I want to be as, as, as uh, clear as I possibly can. I think that social justice warriors who are suggesting that if we're not woke or if we're anti-woke, in other words, if we know what woke is, but we're unwilling to embrace that type of position, that we're heretics. Well, I think that that in and of itself is heretical, okay? Um, but I also want to be clear to suggest that there are many people that are in this social justice movement that I think are, are damaging the church. And I think that they are very unhelpful in their terminology and their language. I think that there are some men who uh, can preach the gospel so much better than, than what they're doing now as far as this agenda is concerned. So I don't want to rush to use the heresy term uh, too quickly. In other words, I I want to I want to be clear as to what heresy is, but then also at the same time use it in its right context. So you know the, the term heresy itself is it's a technical term that means someone who has either added something to or taken something away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you are suggesting that social justice is the gospel, you know, like someone once said, Calvinism is the gospel. I think Spurgeon said it. If you're suggesting that social justice is the gospel, then I think that you can be 
running the risk of, you know, embracing a false gospel and, and, and being heretical. But I think that we need to be balanced and careful on both sides of the fence in this theological conversation so as to not just be throwing the word heresy around without, you know, careful use. All right. And then we, moving on to number 10. And now, now is where we're going to start getting into some of the issues of the social justice movement, uh, sexuality and marriage. What are you trying yeah, to so we want to, Well, we want to, you know, spotlight the importance of marriage. Marriage itself is something that God created for the purpose of demonstrating a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so God is the one who instituted marriage from the beginning, and God is the one who is glorified through that, that covenantal relationship between one man and one woman for life. But we also want to deny that sexuality and gender are socially constructed concepts. And we also want to uh, to deny that one's gender can be fluid. And we want to furthermore reject the category of gay Christianity. And so we want to uphold the, the biblical language of gender role and specificity as God himself is gay. And then following up on that is, is number 11 on complementarianism. So the question that I asked in our Dallas meeting was, is the Danvers statement, is it suddenly, you know, obsolete? Is it not useful anymore? Is it outdated? Uh, is it is it not you know sufficient uh, to, to articulate the positions that we've held for so long? And so we just want to, once again, with this sudden urge, this sudden need for everyone to redefine complementarianism, and we want to affirm the biblical role and responsibility of gender, both male and female, but we want to also deny that you know the God-ordained differences in men and women are somehow holding back people from you know flourishing for the glory of God. And so it's, it's sort of like this. Back in the days of the conservative resurgence, you had people that would argue you would have a liberal and a, and a conservative that would be having a conversation that was centering on inerrancy. And they would say things like this. They would say, well, you know, I believe in inerrancy. And the, and the liberal would say, well, I believe in inerrancy as well. And they would say, really? So what do you mean? And then the, the conservative would say, well, I believe that the Bible is the word of God. And then the liberal or the moderate would say, well, I believe that the Bible contains the Word of God. Mm-hmm. And so then they would they would argue uh, based upon the terminology, but they were approaching the terms with two different definitions. And so I think at the Southern Baptist Convention this year, you had a lot of people that were asking questions, are we denying complementarianism? Because of all of the tweets and the tweet storm that was, you know, just everywhere. Everyone was talking about, should we elect a woman as the president? Can we? You know, and that type of thing. Well, you know, to a lot of the leadership in different panel discussions, and even in you know talks, they were saying things like, "Well, we affirm complementarianism. We unashamedly believe in complementarianism." But the question is, it's not do they believe or hold to complementarianism? It's what do they mean by complementarianism? And so uh, the idea is that there's an awful lot of people who are claiming to embrace the idea of complementarianism, but I think that a lot of people are coming to the table with different definitions. So we need to operate from the same dictionary. And then following that one, number number twelve is. And this is we've addressed this a couple of times, but race, race and ethnicity. Yeah. So we want to affirm right out of the chute that God made all people from one man. So we believe in one human race. And then we don't think that the idea of, of uh, race in the sense of the black race or the white race or whatever other type of uh, distinction that people want to use today. We want to make it known that we think that that's um, an unbiblical category. So we believe in different ethnicities, but one human race, and that we can all be traced back to Adam. And so um, the idea of, of race 
really is something that emerges somewhere about four or 500 years ago. And so um, it's not a biblical understanding. And then following up on that, number 13 is the issue of culture. Yeah, so culture, um, you know, we want to affirm that some cultures operate on assumptions that are inherently better than than those of other cultures. But then we go on to state this because of the biblical truths that inform those worldviews that have produced these distinct assumptions. So in other words, there are certain cultures that are more what we would consider to be um, healthy than others. Um, but we also want to deny that individuals and subgroups in any culture are unable to rise above whatever moral defects or spiritual deficiencies have been uh, engendered or encouraged by those respective cultures. So what we're, what we're trying to communicate there is that, you know, this idea of like a caste system or, or whatever, you know, in, in certain types of uh, uh, nations or, or cultures where you have a, a person that would, you know, be born with this particular cultural distinctive and they would never be able to rise above it. Now, we have in American culture the idea that if you are born into a certain culture that you can't ever rise above it, so you have to have help or we have to have some sort of movement to help the oppressed to rise above it. And we simply don't believe that to be true. We think that, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ can change someone's heart. They might not have the same opportunities at certain levels than other people, but the system is not holding them back on purpose, you know. So um, we just want to be clear as to what we mean by culture and how culture impacts who we are as individuals. You know, it is kind of interesting that if you think about it, when you look at history and the culture that was years ago in England and, and Europe and all, uh, and what made America so different. I mean, Ben Franklin traveled to Europe talking about the fact that in America, uh, people can make their own way. That It wasn't a noble class and the lesser class and it, that people weren't born into a class system. And it, it's almost as if our culture now is trying to put people back into that system where they need to rely on help from others to mm-hmm. be able to move on. And that's not what America was founded on. America was founded on the fact that you can make your own way, work hard, get an education, work, do, you can, you can make a new life for yourself. And that's what drew so many people to America. And it's almost as yeah. if our culture is going back to the system they came out of. Yeah. And that's, and that's exactly what, where Marxism enters the scene here is that that dividing up the culture into, you know, race, gender, and, and class, so to speak. And so we have to then figure out where we fall into those categories, and those subgroups, and then figure out where the oppressed groups are and then run to their aid. And so that's, uh, that's where we can start to see a lot of the, the problems starting to, you know, compile at that juncture. And then the last one, number 14, is racism. Yeah, so this is a hot topic right now. I mean, you have MLK 50, you have lots of conversations happening, you have the, the police brutality issues that are happening. And I love what, what Vody Bauckham says, you know, he, he holds to this idea of what he calls ethnic Gnosticism. It's this idea that, you know, when something bad happens, that there are certain people in the black community that would say, well, we know what, what happened. You know, well, we, we haven't seen the first, you know, line of evidence, but we know what happened because we're black and we know they are out to get us, so to speak. And, uh, and so Bodhi says, no, we don't know. You know, we, we don't know what really happened. And we need to make sure that we are, um, you know, when it comes to something like we hear that someone was shot by a police officer, we don't need to rush to this idea of, well, you know, it, it must have been some sort of racial issue here. And, and we also need to, to remember that, you know, that, that there are a lot of police officers, that, you know, that, that are being murdered as well. We need to think about that when it comes to this conversation. But racism is an extremely volatile, hot topic issue. 
issue. And so we didn't necessarily put it at the end of the statement on purpose, but it just kind of ends there because of the flow of this particular statement. But we want to affirm that racism is a sin that's rooted in pride and or malice, and it should be condemned, and it should be renounced. And so we want to make sure that we we state that with clarity. But then we also want to deny that treating people with sinful partiality or prejudice is consistent with biblical Christianity. So the idea of, you know, a social justice movement on on the idea of racism could actually itself turn out to be reverse racism. And so we need to be very, very careful with how we think about racism. And we need to be thinking about the fact that we need to, we need to, to cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring unity, but we don't need to import certain political maneuvers or ideologies as the, you know, the, the ultimate answer to the problem. Yeah, well, I mean, that gets what we said earlier, right? Trying to reverse racism is still racism. I mean, right. and so it doesn't end it. And that, that's the issue, you know, so, so we have these 14 things. I, I think, I really think that for the, the church, within the church, I think that this, the root issue that we see through this is is going to be one that we people are not trusting in the sovereignty of God and the sufficiency of Scripture. But I mean, it, another article almost that we could maybe add, or, or you know, but an underlying problem I think for our culture is the fact that you know guys like you and I, Josh, we think through issues. I mean, it's almost like we needed one that says we affirm that God gave us a human mind to reason, to come and reason together, but. Mm-hmm culture, it's like we have to say we deny feeling our way through problems. And that's what the culture is doing. I think the real issue that we see in this next generation is a group, a large group of people that don't want to think about issues. They want to feel their way through issues. So truth doesn't matter. I mean, this is, I find it amazing that you get so many professing atheists that want to argue for transgenderism, that somebody's born boy or girl, but they're actually not. They're a different gender and they have to identify, it's how they identify because I actually argue that transgenderism destroys the argument for atheism. So when these atheists argue that, they're they're saying, look, we're not just biology no longer. I mean, they've been for all along saying we're just chemical reactions. Now all of a sudden they're saying, no, it's how we identify, how we feel. Where do you get those feelings from? I mean, if you're biologically male, you're going to be a male. You're biologically only going to be interested in female because that's the biology. Once you start appealing to all this, I kind of I kind of laugh because they don't even think through it that they're the, the professing atheists that support this stuff are destroying their own arguments. Mm-hmm. And it's because yeah. they're feeling their way through it, not thinking their way. And I think I think that's an underlying problem that we're going to have to deal with as a church with the next generation is guys like you and I are used to discussing the theology, reasoning through the scriptures, and the next generation they don't care about that. It's how does it make them feel? Yeah, that's certainly a problem and something that we're going to have to deal with on an ongoing basis. But, you know, we're going to put this statement out and we're going to ask for people to not just feel their way through the statement, but to actually think through the statement. And then, you know, if it doesn't, you know, go against their conscience, if they don't violate their own conscience, then we're going to ask them to stand with us, you know, to, to be bold and to, to sign with their name on this statement and say, you know, we're going to stand here with these people. We're going to, we're going to plant a stake here, a, you know, a flag here, so to speak. So um, I think that this will be helpful, and, and, and it's our goal to not just be uh, focusing on the you know the denial so much, the negative, as to say you know Christianity is is joyful and the gospel is good news, and so we we hope that this statement will be hopeful and joyful at the same time. And I'm going to encourage folks go to statementonsocialjustice.com right now and read through this. 
and sign it. I mean, this is going to go live shortly, um, but we have over 75 people who've already signed this document. More signing, once this goes live, we're going to give even more. And, you know, I, I look at some of the signers and, and some of the folks, as, as we mentioned, guys like Vodi Bakum, guys like Daryl Harris, who, you know, they take a beating because they are are African-American men who are not carrying the, uh, you know, the party line, you know, men like, like Dwayne Atkinson from the bar podcast. I mean, the, the, these guys, um, you know, another one with, you know, would be, I don't know if he signed it is, is Virgil Walker from just thinking who he and Daryl Harris do that. And these guys take a lot of abuse because they're, they're not following the tribalism that they're quote unquote supposed to be following. And it's mm-hmm. as if they're, they're being called traitors for mm-hmm. standing up for the truth of the gospel. God's word. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right. And I, you know, I want to commend those guys for standing on the word of God and not just being, you know, driven by their, their, you know, tribal lines, so to speak. And I think that we can all be guilty of that at times. And, and a lot of times, especially within, you know, politics, for instance. But, but as it pertains to the idea of feeling rather than you know, knowing or, you know, being led by feeling rather than knowledge. It's this idea that, you know, victimology has somehow replaced theology. And so what we want to do is we want to say, well, you know, I've been victimized, I've been oppressed, I've been terminated against. So it creates this, this sympathetic, you know, feel-good type of motive of, of running to the aid of that individual. And so, you know, rather than just dealing with the issues, we have to, to run that direction. And I think that that's where a lot of this social justice stuff. So. I agree. So, so Josh, you know, we've gone a little bit longer than we typically go on a rap report podcast, the weekly ones, but I think this is one of great importance. And I, I wanted to get you to be able to share what's going on and your heart on all this and, and the points that are trying to be made. Anything else that you, you would want for folks to know other than going, reading the statement, signing it, share, get the statement, share it when it goes live, when this website goes live, share it everywhere so that people know because people need to be, we as conservative Christians that would sign this statement need to make a voice that's loud. You're, you're going to be able to see on statement on socialgospel.com. There's going to be blog articles that are going to be coming out within the first week. You're going to see an article uh, from Dr. John MacArthur. You're going to see a bunch of articles that are going to come out and, and stuff. So I want to encourage you to keep going there, keep reading the article, share the articles because we need to put a stop to this movement within the church. We need need to penetrate the the culture with the gospel and we need to penetrate the church with the word of god not the world but other than that josh what would anything you want to share before you we we go yeah i mean i, I say you know go to the statement it's a statement on socialjustice.com as you mentioned share it with folks but I just want to emphasize the the beauty of something like this is that we are actually given the freedom to have an intellectual, theological conversation in such a way that can be beneficial to the Church of Jesus Christ. So I would just encourage not only sharing this statement, but to pray for the Church of Jesus Christ and to ask for God's blessing, ask for the Spirit of God to bring clarity and unity, and so that this very dangerous agenda, as it's been discussed at the very you know beginning of this episode, that this dangerous agenda would not have its full effect upon the Church of Christ. And so we want to see this to be a, a beneficial, joyful uh, pushback against something that could be so deviant. That's so true. So, uh, you know, Josh, thank you. Thanks for coming on. Um, you know, I, I, we're going to, you know, for folks who are regular listeners, we're going to come back after a commercial 
commercial, just uh, give you guys some updates of some stuff going on with Striving for Eternity. Striving for Eternity is a Christ-centered ministry focused on equipping people for eternity, and they provide speakers and seminars that come to your church with expertise in theology, hermeneutics, world religions, creation science, evangelism, presuppositional apologetics, church history, and expertise in sexual abuse in the church. For details on their seminars and to request a speaker for your church, go to strivingforeternity.org. Striving to make today an eternal day for the glory of God. And so with that, just to give you guys some updates of where Striving for Eternity is going to be in the next few months, um, starting September, September, October is going to be a busy time. September uh, 14th to 16th, Dr. Anthony Silvestro and myself will be joined by Mark Spence from Living Waters. We'll be out at Redwood City, California, that's Northern California, to do a Equip NorCal conference. Um, the following weekend, the 21st to the 23rd, we'll be in Carnation, Washington, or at least I'll be in Carnation, Washington, to do a seminar on what do we believe. Um, September 28th and 29th, I will be down in the South Jersey Apologetics Conference uh, dealing with the topic of evangelism. And then on October 5th, I'll be in New Jersey at Gyra Church in Marlboro, New Jersey. Um, I, that again will deal with the topic of evangelism. And then the 12th, October 12th to the 14th, I will be out in Cooney, Idaho with uh, Brother Justin Peters Church and uh, Jim Osmond. He's the pastor there. I will be speaking out there doing a the Ambassador uh, Evangelism Seminar that we have. October 20th, we're going to have a special outreach in New York City. For those who want to join us, we got some folks coming in from California and Dallas, and we're going to take them to do some evangelism in New York City, which is a great place to do especially open air evangelism if you enjoy that. But a lot of you, you can literally reach the world and talk to every different religion from one spot called Union Square in there. So that's um, what we have going on. And I think uh, that's, we're going to have some, I think another date I'm still working on in November. But um, the, the, if you would like to have us come to your church, to your conference, have one of our speakers, Dr. Anthony Silvestro, Pastor Frank Mulls, or myself, uh, we're, we'd be glad to come out and uh, be part of um, what you may be looking to do. So if you're in those areas, and you would like to, you know, attend. I know we don't have everything on the website, but if you'd like to attend, please email us info at strivingforeternity.org and we will get you all the information, the specific details of where those events are. And we're, we're going to be updating the website to add those things. We, we, you've noticed we have a brand new website, but I do hope this was an important issue, what we discussed here with Josh. And I hope that you will share that with others because this is something we really have to get the word out about this. So I hope that you would take this episode and share this. Hope that you are subscribers to The Wrap Report. We do have a daily podcast. It's two minutes every day. We wrap it up on Saturday. And then on Sunday, we usually drop a one hour podcast. This one was a little bit longer than usual, but I hope that you subscribe to this podcast. Please share it. And I do want to mention in the show notes is a link to our Patreon. For folks who like the rap report, we have a radio station that would like to syndicate the rap report show. 
not only our dailies, but also our weekly. But it takes money to do that. We need to raise about $40,000 to be able to get the daily. That's every, Monday through Friday. We would be on syndicated radio. I think it's, it's several hundred <laughs> several hundred radio stations that they want to get it on. And so that's something we want you to consider doing. The, we want to get the, uh, we're going to be starting with the Christian podcast community. If you're not familiar with that, the Christian podcast community has a whole bunch of podcasts that are going to be coming on starting in September. You're going to start seeing us roll those out. And with that, we're going to have a, a new show that's going to be coming soon. And that show is going to be a two-hour apologetics live. And that is also something that they want to get on the air. But to get that two hours to be put on, they want to put it on on Saturday nights to get that, or Sunday nights, I think. And to get that on, that's going to cost almost $100,000 to get that syndicated a year. So we need your support. Would you go to the Patreon page and help support us? We would greatly appreciate that. Thanks for listening and please share this episode everywhere you can. Go out and strive to make today an eternal day for the glory of God. This podcast is part of the Striving for Eternity ministry. For more content or to request a speaker or seminar to your church, go to strivingforeternity.org.